Well, good morning again. I'm Wayne Smith. Uh, I work at Masters Academy, a ministry of our church. And it's my honor to be here this morning, part two of a three-part series on God's grace. Uh, it's an extended series in the book of Acts, and we've been in and out of that book now for, I don't know how long, a year or so, and, then, and that's good. We have little diversions here and there. Um, but we're in the middle of a series that I've called Acts of Grace. Last week, we, uh, we looked at grace received. We looked at the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch and the radical rabbi. Uh, this week, we will look at grace pressed, and we will look at the conversion of the religious Roman. Uh, next week, we'll wrap up the series and we'll look at grace poured out, the work of the Holy Spirit and God's grace is poured out on us. And then in two, in two weeks, I'm really, really excited about this. You cannot miss this. You have to cancel holiday plans, put the RV away, and you need to be here in two weeks because we will have a guest with us, a visitor, my father. Not, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I'll set you up for that. Not in presence, but uh, I'm going to get him on the phone and we're going to put him on speakerphone and we're going to have this dad-son dialogue about our faith journey uh, for Father's Day. And I'm really excited about that, so pray for that. And my dad's excited about that. Um, and so that's going to be a special moment uh, for us. This isn't just a Wayne Norman thing. We really just want to share our testimony as a testimony to God's goodness of what he's done in our lives, and so I look forward to that. Now, before we get into the message this morning, we, will have an, we are going to have another moment of prayer. As church leaders, as school leaders, we often get asked to participate in this, or stand for that, or recommend this, or petition that, and a lot of those things we just don't do, not because we don't agree with them, but just there's just things that we just don't feel led to do. But we've uh, received an invitation from Franklin Graham, uh, the son of Billy Graham, to just call church to pray for our leader. Uh, and this is biblical. The Bible says pray for those in authority over you. So we're going to take a special moment now and pray for the office of the president and our president. Uh, also want to mention to you that Pastor Jeremy Van Valkenburg right now is undergoing surgery. He has an infection in his knee and has gone right into the joint. And so they're going in and just cleaning it out. And, and there's nothing serious or more serious than that. We trust and pray, but we're going to pray for him too. Okay, so let's pray. Father, you have, you have called, called us to pray for our leaders, to submit ourselves to our leaders, to lift them up to you. Uh, we thank you for this, for this from Franklin Graham to the church around this country to just pray for our president, and we pray for him, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would uh, challenge him, that you would speak to him, areas of his life, Lord, that you need to convict him. We pray that you would do that. I pray that you would stir him and his fellow leaders and those that advise him, Lord, to not only seek what is expedient and what's good for our country economically, but what's good for God, what's good for the propagation of the gospel, what's good for the freedom of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would stir our leaders to, uh, to do that. We thank you 
for our leaders, um, and we thank you for the men and women who, who volunteer to serve us. And we do pray that you would um, empower them and guide them to do what's right. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for this privilege for prayer, uh, privilege that we can lift, lift up to you. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would hear our prayer, hear our petition. We pray for our, prath, our pastor and our friend, Jeremy, uh, even now going under surgery, Lord, that you would be with him, that you would touch him, that, Lord, you would guide the surgeons, even now, that they would get, get out infection in his knee and that he would be restored to full health. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would uh, speak to, to us your word this morning, uh, deliver it to us, melt our hearts, uh, unchain our stubbornness, and may we hear what you have to say from your word, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have a question for you. Now, I asked this in the huddle, and they didn't get the accent. So I need to be careful about this. How's your eyesight? Did you get that? How's your vision? How are your eyes doing this morning? They're a little bit scratchy, a little bit irritated. Why is that? <laughs> Last week I said to you that grace is something we like to talk about, we like to sing about. Something we probably don't fully understand, and it's something that we practice very poorly at times. As imperfect human beings, we eagerly receive grace. We celebrate it when others receive grace, but we're not always quick to practice grace. In fact, we actually find it easier to withhold grace at times than to practice it. We find it easier to find fault than to see good. We find it easier to slander sometimes than to lift them up in praise. We sometimes find it easier to hold someone in at a distance than to welcome them and embrace them. But this isn't, this isn't how Jesus lived. When Jesus walked this earth, sinners were drawn to him. They sought his presence. I'm sure they occasionally dropped his name. Do you know who came to dinner last night? Jesus. There's something very attractive about grace when it is practiced. Blair, Blair Pascal, 17th century math, mathematician, said this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Isn't that a powerful statement? Isn't that a kind of a sobering statement for us as Christians? People are often drawn to proof, and, and, and I, personally I don't like this because I like evidence. I've got all kinds of arguments for the existence of God. My faith, I confess you, is more cerebral than it is emotional. I understand, I get it, I connect the dots. That's the evidence. I'd rather not say to you, look to Jesus inside of me. <laughs> I'd rather not say like Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, that is a bit more uncomfortable, isn't it? People, according to Blaise Pascal, says people are more drawn to something that's attractive rather than something that you get evidence for. 
Christianity has historically been very attractive. It grew rapidly in the first century. It withstood wave after wave after wave of Roman persecution. It was attractive. It became the official religion of the Roman Empire. It shaped Western civilization. It was, was the birthing of some of the world's major reform movements. Women's liberation, the abolition movement, civil rights movement, anti-institutionalized racism in South Africa. One of the first organizations to oppose that was a group of pastors. Christianity, in its authentic, original version, is extremely attractive. And why is that? Well, one word, grace. Grace is attractive. Grace is what we crave. When we get caught with our hands in the cookie jar, we crave grace. Now, boss calls us into the office and lays out issues that we've done wrong. We crave grace. Young people, you're listening to me? When our parents catch us in a lie, we crave grace. When we get pulled over by the cop, we crave grace. And God abounds in grace. God is slow to anger, abounding and quick to love, to extend grace. And when the world sees Christianity abounding in grace, Christianity becomes attractive. However, and this is where spiritual idealism crashes into stark reality. So much, as much as we crave grace when we least deserve it, we are all too often reluctant to practice grace when confronted the guilt of others. Instead, we want justice. We want revenge. We want blood. When a brutal, violent, radical rabbi ravages the church, what is God's measure of justice for him? Grace. Come join us. When a cheating, conniving, treasonous Jewish tax collector financially rapes rape his own people, what is God's measure of justice for him? Grace. Come join us. In the most inequitable relationships, grace can triumph. When you are most undeserving and when there is no chance of ever earning grace, and when you least expect it, Grace can be poured out on you. And in the most uncomfortable of scenarios, when you have been wronged in the most egregious ways, God can give you extraordinary measures of grace to practice. This week we will look at the concept of grace practiced as we look at the conversion of a religious Roman, probably my favorite chapter in the book of Acts, but there's an interesting twist to the version of Cornelius. He's not one of us. He's different. He's a Roman. He's uncircumcised. The church is going to be challenged with the conversion of Cornelius. 
Have you ever heard the expression, when you rattle a cage, you see what's in it? <laughs> the church's cage is about to get rattled in Acts chapter 10. To fully appreciate the weight of Cornelius' conversion, you must appreciate the historic divide between Jew and Gentile. And, and I'm not emphasize enough the significance of what, what conversion represented. For centuries, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews were kept apart by law. God told them, you enter into Canaan, do not associate with the locals, do not marry into them, do not do business with them, just stay away from them. And, and, and it wasn't a racial issue, it wasn't an ethnic issue, it was a religious preservation issue. There are plenty, plenty examples in Scripture where non-Jews converted and they joined Judaism, so it was never a racial or an ethnic thing. But by the time we get into the first century, the New Testament era, there, these divisions are, are deep, they're emotional, they're often divided along racial lines, and then God calls Peter to go and minister to one of these Gentiles. That was a huge, huge move at that time. Do not underestimate how difficult it was. What Jesus is about to ask Peter to do and what Jesus is about to ask the church to do and what Jesus might ask you to do may be extremely unsettling. But it could change your life. At this stage, the church is only about eight years old. It is about, it is about to take a dramatic turn. If we were somehow observers on the periphery and we're watching Luke write his story, by the time we get to Acts 10, we'd probably take a breath and we'd think, I hope this works. <laughs> I hope this works. I was, uh, we actually came here to this wonderful country to be in an associate pastor position of a church in North Carolina. Um, and during the interview process, one of the objections to the church hiring me was, he's gonna fill the church with blacks. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> this white South African is gonna come and fill the church with blacks. Oh, what's wrong with that? Right? Amen. Thank you. <laughs> well, about six months into my time at that church, a lady came and visited. It was a small church, so everyone that was visiting, we knew that they were visiting. And so I went and greeted her, her friended her, and I contacted her during the week. And she said this to me. She said, I came to visit your church because I'm a single mother. I've got a teenage daughter, and she is biracial. And I'm wondering if she would be welcome in your church. Isn't it sad that we, that we wouldn't ask the question? And my verbiage to her wasn't a lie, but kind of was guarded because I took a breath and I thought, I thought, I hope this works. I hope it works. 
And as we read about Luke, I mean, Luke writing and what God is about to ask the church to do, we kind of take a breath and we say, oh, Lord, I hope this works. This is, this is huge. This is big. This is dramatic. The future of the church will hinge not just on what happens in the home of the religious Roman, but the future of the church will hinge on how the church responds to what happens in the home of the religious Roman. I'm going to read that statement again. The future of the church will not only hinge on what happens in the home of the religious Roman, the church will hinge on how the church responds to what happens in the home of the religious Roman. And we take a breath and we ask ourselves, how are your eyes doing this this morning? Are they a little bit scratchy? <laughs> All right, we're ready to get into Acts chapter 10. Peter is in the coastal town of Joppa. He's gone through this little itinerant journey. He's gone from Jerusalem to, to Lydda. Then he's on to Joppa. Joppa's on the coast. About a day and a half journey north is the town of Caesarea. And Luke starts his narrative in chapter 10 in the town of Caesarea. Verse 1, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So what do we know about Cornelius? Well, he was a Roman. He was a centurion, which means he was successful as a soldier. He was in charge of at least 100 men, probably more. Uh, this word Italian is the first and only time it's used in the entire Bible. His, his regiment was called the Italian cohort. They were volunteers. They weren't paid. I'm not sure the circumstances. Maybe these guys didn't need pay. Maybe they were retired. Uh, maybe uh, Joppa, Amantasaria, was kind of a peaceful town, and they just volunteered to go serve at this Roman outpost. We know from the text that Cornelius is a religious man. He prays, he fears God, he gives to the needy. We don't know the nature of his faith. I suspect, scholars suspect, that he had a, an affinity with Judaism. He is not a Jew. He's not even a proselyte. He hasn't converted to Judaism. But he, he finds Judaism attractive. He's, he's God-fearing. What is clear and what is so, so significant for this passage and for our discussion this morning is that Cornelius was a Roman soldier. He represented the pagan oppress of Israel, the occupying forces. He was clearly not Jewish. He's, he's one of us. <laughs> Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he, Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him and said, what is it, Lord? And so Cornelius has this vision, and, 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 and yet too, we aren't sure what the nature of this vision is, but Cornelius has this vision, and, and, and God talks, and God says, Cornelius, there's a guy down in Joppa. His name is Peter. You need to send for him. 
And I'm paraphrasing, I'm kind of reading between the lines. He is going to tell you, Cornelius, about the true faith that you need to turn your life to. Cornelius doesn't know a whole lot. So Cornelius calls some of his men. He sends them down to Joppa to call Peter. The following day, Joppa's about a day and a half's journey. The following day, Luke switches his narrative to Joppa, to where Peter is. It's about midday. Peter's waiting for lunch. He gets a bit restless. He goes on the roof of the home, which is nothing unusual in the Middle East. Even today, a lot of homes have flat roofs where people actually, in the middle of summer, if they don't have AC, they'll go out and sleep on their roof at night. And so Peter, in the middle of the day, is, is on the roof of the house, and he, he sees this vision. Look at verse 12. In it, a sheet, let me just set this up some more. Peter, Peter sees this vision, and this sheet comes down from heaven, and inside the sheep, I mean the sheet, are all kinds of animals. Let's read verse, verse 12. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Let's just pause there. We got invited to the dinner recently, and I was told that we were having ham. So because my wife is one of the Messianic Jews, um, I asked our host, is this kosher ham? <laughs> I actually joked about this with someone about two years ago. We were invited to dinner, and we were having pork, and I said, well, my wife only eats kosher ham. Maybe I shouldn't say this. <laughs> they actually wondered where they could get kosher ham, kosher pork. <laughs> there were, there are things that Jews will not eat. Shellfish, lobster, shrimp. They will not eat pork. Oh, we love barbecue, don't we? So Peter has this vision, and the sheet, this top, like, comes down, and it's full of animals, clean and unclean. And what is it that God says to him? Look, this is, this is so huge. I want you to get the, 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 the immense significance of what God is about to ask Peter to do in verse 13. And there came a voice that says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. He refuses to eat. But God basically tells him, Peter, you must this is, this, is, this is an object lesson. It's figurative. Peter, I'm calling you to do something. <laughs> it's going to go against the grain. It's going to go against centuries of law. It's going to go against centuries of practice. Peter, I'm, Peter, you have to do this. You have to. Peter, get up. Eat. Peter's kind of pondering this thinking about it. What kind of strange vision is this? What strange message that this is from God? And just then there's a knock on the door. <laughs> and God says to him, there's men at the door. You need to go with them. Peter, Peter starts connecting the dots. Let's pick up the story, verse 23. 
The next day he rose and went away with him, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting him and had called together his relatives and close friends. <laughs> I love that phrase. Cornelius calls his buddies, his family, his friends. The Bible doesn't tell us Cornelius knows what's, what's coming, right? But he calls his friends. Cornelius is expecting to hear from God. Calls his friends. Maybe there's a knot in our stomach. I hope that this was. Verse 28. And he, that's Peter, said to them, You yourselves know how, how lawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Do you get the significance of what Peter is saying? You know, talking to Gentiles, you know that I shouldn't be here. According to my law, according to my people, I should not be in this house. Let's read on. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. To paraphrase Peter, Peter is saying, do you know how hard it was for me to come here today? Do you know how hard this is? Practicing grace, my friends, has never promised to be easy. It might be the hardest thing God calls you to do at times. Let's read on verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now don't get confused about this verse. There's a lot of misinterpretation about this verse. It does not mean anyone in any nation who fears God is acceptable. What Peter saying that if you fear God, doesn't matter where you are, if you want the truth, if you're seeking the truth, if you will be sensitive to what God is doing in your life, you can find the truth. And he tells them in this passage, it's in Christ. It's in Jesus. He's the way. So Peter gives them a message, and I'm not going to read through that. Let's down to verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the, the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. I wonder what they were expecting. They're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had, was poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. Even on, you fill in the blank, even on Oh, those are fighting words in some circles in Israel. That'll get people riled up. That'll make people mad. Even the Gentiles? Even the uncircumcised religious Roman soldier? 
Cornelius becomes a follower of Jesus. And we celebrate, right? We rejoice. Not yet. Not yet. Hold that applause. Verse 11. Now, the apostles, I mean, not verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read on chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Heaven forbid that the white South African would bring, bring black people into the church. Right? How dare this Jewish Christian go and minister to non-Jewish people? How dare Peter go and darken the doors of an uncircumcised Roman? This criticism didn't come from the Pharisees. This criticism came from within the church. The circumcision party was a group of Christians within the New Testament church that were holding legalistically and dogmatically to Old Testament law. And how dare Peter, how dare he go to a Roman into their house and present the gospel? They criticized him. Philip Yancey in his book, if you ever want to read a great book on grace, read Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. He uses the word ungrace many times in that book. I'm not sure if that's the correct word. I'm not sure if there's such a word as ungrace. But here is a picture of ungrace. Rather than celebrating salvation... <laughs> And then maybe whispering to Peter, Peter, you know, you might have checked with the leaders before you went to his house, house let us know. Rather than celebrating and, and, and the conversion of a pagan, they criticize him. Oh, God help us. Look at verse 17. We're still in chapter 11. Peter responds to them. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they felt silent and they glorified God. Now we can celebrate. Now we can cheer. <laughs> I want to go back quickly and recap seven phrases out of these passages. Okay, just, just, just quickly, I'm just going to fly through them. Passages, they're going to be up on the screen. But I just want to kind of pull this together into like a little summary. First of all, Peter's vision. He sees these unclean animals, and he says, By no means, look, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. 
One of the first things out of Peter's mouth when he entered Cornelius' house, you yourselves know how unlawfully it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Philip, he says, grace is the only force in the universe powerful enough to break the chains that enslave generations. The third thing, Peter is getting it now. He's kind of connecting the dots. He knows what God is doing. He knows that God is doing, doing some great. He says, truly understand that God shows no partiality. And then when the Holy Spirit falls on the group, and when Cornelius and his friends give their hearts to the Lord, Luke says this, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. When Peter reports this to the church back in Jerusalem, Luke tells us the circumcision party criticized him. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter gets it. He says, who was I that I could stand in the way of what God is doing? The church eventually gets it too. They heard these things and they fell silent and they glorified God. What a wonderful story. I love that story. What a wonderful story. I wish I could tell you that that was the end of the Gentile Jewish divide in the church. It wasn't. It comes up. Acts 15, Acts 21, the book of Galatians, over and over again, there's wedges and divisions in the church. And we see it played out today, Christians and non-Christians, Protestants and Catholics, Reformed, Arminian, traditional, contemporary, my way, your way. Divisions hinder the work of grace. Divisions cause us to be very unattractive. What can we do? What must we do to ensure that the practice of grace triumphs over divisions amongst us? In the last portion of this message, I want to take us briefly through a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 7. And I'm basically going to challenge you to have an eye exam. Okay? Matthew 7, hang with me. I know time's running here, but this is going to be another six or seven minutes. Matthew 7 and verse 3. Jesus is asking, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? (laughs) What makes you think that you can see clearly enough to see a speck in your brother's eye? What gives you the title of eye inspector? (laughs) That you can see your brother has a speck, your sister has a speck in their eye. Do you see clearly enough to see that they have a speck? Let's let's read the rest of that verse. Verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Do you know why? Because it's far easier for me to see the speck in your own eye than to admit there's a log in my eye. Besides, I don't believe I've got, got a log in my eye. But you sure do have a speck in yours. It's easier for me to criticize you than to receive criticism. Practicing grace is not always easy. 
Extending grace to certain people is not always easy. Extending grace to certain kinds of people is not always easy. Extending grace to certain people who do certain things and live certain lifestyles is not always easy. Jesus asks this very powerful question, and it's unsettling. Why are you so focused on the speck in their eye and you're ignoring the log in your own eye? Why the scrutiny in someone else's shortcomings? Why pay attention in their speck? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they're a Democrat. And that's not a speck, that's an entire forest. Because she's a Republican. That's not a speck, that's an entire oak tree. Because he eats lunch at sleazy bars. And then he goes home, and you know what he watches? He watches CNN. That's not a speck. They have wine with their dinner. For some of us, it's more personal. Some of you might say, do you know what she said about my family? That's not a speck. Do you know what my uncle did to me when I was six or seven years old? He didn't introduce me to the mysteries of sex. He introduced me to the miseries of sex. That's not a speck. Do you know that our daddy deserted us when I was five or six years old and my mother had to raise us and we battled and battled and battled? That's not a speck. Do you know what their people did to my people? That's not a speck. Don't tell me to ignore it. Jesus isn't asking you to ignore it. Jesus ask, is asking you to view that speck in relation to what's in your own eye too. Jesus goes on in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? Jesus knows, and we know, it's far easier for me to point out the speck in your eye than to take the log out of mine. And then Jesus drops the H word. If it was anyone else but Jesus, we would be offended. How dare you call me the H word? How dare you? Verse 5, Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. God knows all about you. He knows your hypocrisy. He knows what you have experienced. He knows what you have done. He knows what has been done to you. He knows all of this, and yet he still chose to come and die for us. We call that grace. And then he turns around and he says, now you, go practice grace. Romans 8 verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Philip Yancey in his book says, we deserve punishment, we got forgiveness. We deserved wrath, we got love. We deserved debtor's prison, we got a clean credit history. We deserved a stern lecture, we got a banquet of grace. 
And Christ died for us anyway. So I've got a question for you. It's kind of summarizing what Jesus just asked us. Got logs? Got logs? Jesus says you've got logs. We all do. And if we would just pay attention to the logs in our own eye, we might realize that the speck in our brother's eye or the speck in our sister's eye isn't all that much of a speck anyway. And that encounter, that encounter that you should have, that talk that you should have, that phone call that you need to make, that reconciliation that you're trying to do, if you would pay attention to the speck or the log that's in your own eye, you might see that encounter as an opportunity to practice grace. Got logs? There's something very attractive about grace when it is practiced. There's something very attractive about a church when a church practices grace. The worship team is going to lead us in an old favorite hymn. I remember as a young man sitting in church, I hadn't been saved for long, maybe a year or two. It was a Sunday night and I wasn't paying attention to the message. I was flipping through the hymn book and my eyes landed on this hymn and it just made such an impression on me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. But he does, right? Grace. The second verse says, He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. We call that grace. And then Jesus says, My grace is freely given to you. Now go and practice grace on others. Got logs? Allow the Lord to deal with your logs. Allow the Lord to examine your eyes, your heart, your motives, your attitudes, your hypocrisy. And allow Him to turn you into a grace practitioner. I invite you to turn to the Lord as He leads you. You need someone to pray with, there will be prayer partners on this side of the church. If you want to be alone, pray right where you are, come to the altar. Ask the Lord, Lord, show me my logs. Don't allow me to be an example of ungrace. Let's pray. Lord, these have been heavy words, but you stir in our hearts, Lord stir in our hearts I pray that you would stir us to respond to you I pray that you would just like Peter got it, I pray Lord that we would get it, that you're doing a work amongst us in our church, in our lives in our families, that you're doing a work Lord that you want us to be people of grace but there's so many times when our logs hinder grace
help us, Lord, to be honest about where we are. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit this morning as He challenges you. Pastor Randy, lead us, please.
God loves you unconditionally right now. Thank you, Lord. We worship you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for that love. It isn't dependent on what we do or not do. It's unconditional. It's there. It's here. We receive it now. We receive the grace that you offer freely.